Welcome back to season two of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. Today, I'm talking to orthopaedic surgeon, Dr. Gary Fetke, who frustrated by the increasing number of limbs of diabetic patients he was forced to amputate, found himself sanctioned by the Australian Medical Board for prescribing low sugar diets to these patients. He was told he was not allowed to make any recommendations to his patients about nutrition at all. It would take the best part of five years from when complaints were first raised for this decision to be reversed, and Gary received an apology from the medical board. But his experience treating diabetic patients began a lifelong investigation into the science of nutrition, the dietary guidelines, and just what makes a healthy diet. And Gary's become convinced that for all of us, sugar, refined carbs and polyunsaturated fats come together to create the perfect storm in our bodies. And he argues that's why today we're seeing a higher level of metabolic illness than we've ever seen before. But before we get to Gary's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more, you can sign up to my Substack account, which is liztucker.substack.com. Go to my podcast website, at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And if you'd like to financially support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this. So even a small amount a month makes a huge difference. And you can provide support at patreon.com slash you or via my website, which as I mentioned is whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks. And now back to the interview with Gary. Dr. Gary Fetke is an orthopaedic surgeon based in Tasmania, Australia. He's a particular interest in preventative medicine. And although his speciality is surgery, Gary believes it's much better to help patients avoid this, if at all possible, by making changes to their diets instead. Here's his interview. Well, Gary, thank you so much indeed for joining me today. My pleasure, Liz. In 2014, You've been working as an orthopaedic surgeon for several decades in Tasmania, and you're seeing an increasing number of patients suffering from diabetes side effects, which are leading to you having to amputate limbs. That sounds pretty grim. I've taken a very preventative aspect to health for a long time. So for many years, I wouldn't operate on smokers, and I was called a redneck. I said, well, actually, the data's there. Nowadays, it's okay to say I'm not going to operate because of the complications. And the same thing went with obesity. I said, well, actually, we, we can avoid surgery on those who are super obese. And I, I don't think I was being discriminatory because I was looking at exit strategies. And then the amputation diabetes thing just became all-consuming in my practice in that northern Tasmania, I ended up seeing most of the diabetic foot complications for a catchment population of a quarter of a million, maybe 300,000. And where it used to be an uncommon event my Friday clinics ended up being called Fetke's Effed Up Fructose-Free Fungating Foot Folly Fridays. Every week, I get the medical students, I say, come along to this clinic on a Friday afternoon because you are going to see something which you're not going to see in the rest of your career. And it's all coming in. So where I used to be doing one amputation you know, every couple of years, it became partial foot amputations on a weekly basis. There was a certain smell to my clinic. That's the modern day leprosy. And this was an avoidable condition. We're now faced with it, not just in Tasmania, but it's a tsunami right around the, the world, including the developing world. Diabetes is out of control. I've done foreign aid work. 
and diabetes in our Polynesian neighbours is out of control, and so is diabetic foot ulceration and then gangrene and amputations. They don't have the infrastructure in developing nations to actually support people, let alone amputees. So I was literally surrounded by it. But what I don't understand, Gary, as you say, diabetes is sort of out of control. Here in the UK, it's already taking up 10% of the GP's drug budget. We've got three and a half million Britons have got diabetes, scheduled to go up to about five, I think, by 2025. There's at least double that which are undiagnosed. Multiply it by another factor of two or three who are pre-diabetic. It's a massive problem. So potentially, this could crash healthcare systems around the world. I think it's crushing it already. If you actually look at the problems related to diabetes, but as importantly, the cause of that, you know, which is diet, lifestyle, insulin-resistant states, it crosses not just diabetes, it crosses heart disease, it crosses mental health, it crosses chronic kidney disease. It is right across the board. It is already crushing the system. We've got the same health issues that you have in the UK. The latest figures out of the US are that 93.2% of the population are metabolically unwell. And what's that data based on, Gary? That's based on blood pressure, waist circumference and liver function tests. The data's there. We've been getting more and more obese. Our weight's going up. We're becoming more and more metabolically unwell. And our health system has literally reached over the tipping point. And we're now not coping. It doesn't matter which Western country you're looking at, probably most of the developing nations as well. And one of the discussions I have with politicians is our system was coping with when 80% of the population was metabolically unwell or 85% of the population. We're now at 90 plus percent. So we don't need to do an enormous amount to get the system back into some semblance of control. If we could improve metabolic health across the entire spectrum, we'll in fact change that equation and just push numbers back in the opposite direction. What we're doing at the moment is band-aiding sick care. It is completely and utterly unsustainable. We're just flushing money resources, both you know financial and human, down the waste. So being a surgeon, it's all about problem solving. I'm not going to keep band-aiding. And if you actually go back to root cause, then that's where we've got to direct our efforts. And root cause is about prevention. And most of the Western diseases, the modern diseases we've got, have a preventable aspect. And most of them have an origin which lies in our diet and to a lesser degree, our lifestyle. This is a reversible situation. Now, you came into conflict with your hospital authorities when you suggested that diabetic patients in hospital should not be eating up to three desserts a day. That was a light bulb moment for me. I've got a young guy in his 40s that I'm about to amputate one leg and his other leg came close to it. I said, why are you eating ice cream? And he said, it's on the hospital menu. That was the moment for me. He said, I have, oh, I have it for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I've taken the system on on this. This is the hospital food guidelines. The national food guidelines for patients with diabetes includes having ice cream three times per day, having chocolate biscuits, having fruit juices, having cakes for morning and afternoon tea, and then chasing them with medications and then wondering why their blood glucoses are out of control. Their mental states are out of control as their blood glucose is going up and down and yo-yoing all over the place. I mean, it's puzzling, isn't it? Because diabetes patients are carbohydrate intolerant. You can't say that, Liz. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. But, I mean, that's what it is. But you try and explain that to most doctors and endocrinologists, and I use that term exactly. I say, this person has an intolerance, albeit almost an allergy, to carbohydrate. And they look at me and go, oh, no, carbohydrates are essential. 
There is no biochemical pathway in the body that requires us to ingest glucose or fructose. None. Because the glucose our body needs, we can produce without eating any external glucose. We need very, very small amounts of our glucose to maintain the red cells in our bodies, in our bloodstream, the, uh, some of the cells in the lens of the eye and some of the cells in the kidney and the small cells in the loop of Henley. Very, very small amounts. And they're easily generated by gluconeogenesis from breaking down protein or from lipolysis of fat breaking down glycogen, the glucose that's actually in fat deposits. We come down to biochemistry. Inside the cell, inside the mitochondria, it's about fueling and it's about giving the right amount of micronutrients. It's giving complete proteins, complete healthy fats. Outside of the mitochondria, outside of the cell, all of this nutrition stuff has become politicised, monetized. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but can't argue with the biochemistry. And when people say, oh, you know, you've got to have 50% of your diet as carbohydrate, which is the dietary guidelines, I go, okay, where did you come up with that? Oh, it's because we were told that. Okay, okay, who told you that? Who came up with the dietary guidelines? I was prescribing for my patients that have two boiled eggs per day and a slice of cheese because I couldn't get it on the menu. So incredibly dangerous behaviour. I was prescribing protein and healthy fats. I tried going to the dietitians. The dietitians felt as I was undermining them, giving public lectures to the physicians on fructose. I didn't actually complain to the admin originally. I actually tried working with the system. As it turned out, I then entered this realm of thing called social media. And I, you know, I'm just an orthopedic surgeon in the backwater of Tasmania. You know, I'm a nobody. But because all of a sudden I was talking about the perils of sugar and processed food, and I was someone who was sick and tired of chopping limbs off, that gained greater credibility. Really interesting. It wasn't long. And again, all of this is with the retrospectoscope. We didn't know this at the time. But in the retrospect, what happened was the dietitians felt threatened. At the same time, the Dietitians Association here in Australia was in a paid contractual agreement with the cereal industry. We've got the contractual agreement. So the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturing Forum, which included Kellogg's, Sanitarium, Freedom Foods, and Nestle. Their PR firm had a whole page of minutes of meetings and listed emails. The minutes actually said cereal sales are down in Australia and New Zealand because of the concepts of low-carb, paleo, arguably keto. And Gary, a document from the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturers Forum of the Australian Food and Grocery Council, titled Active Defence, included a number of people who'd been promoting a low-carb diet, and you were the only doctor listed. The Dietitians Association wrote to my CEO of my hospital my chief executive officer, saying that I needed to be silenced. They wrote twice. And in the process of that, it was then that a dietitian from the hospital reported me to the medical board. The medical board started investigating. I thought it was a joke originally. I thought, you've got to be kidding. I'm telling my patients not to eat sugar. I suppose what puzzles me with this, Gary, is I can understand, obviously, if you're the cereal industry, you want to increase market growth. So it makes absolute sense that you would want to lobby for that. But they're not the only part of the food industry What were the meat industry doing, the dairy industry doing? Why weren't they also lobbying and getting involved in the guidelines? If you look at national food guidelines at the time, they did have meat and dairy and eggs and cheese and breads in them. But if you actually look at the evolution of the dietary guidelines, you can actually see that that breakfast cereal component, which used to be the smallest component, 
started becoming a bigger and bigger component. The meat, dairy, eggs, the animal-based food products become smaller and smaller components of that. And so if you look now for fresh animal-based product on our Australian healthy guide to eating, it's, it's literally, you've got to put, send, I call it, you've got to send out a search and rescue party to try and find it. And if we start looking at that influence of the movement of our diet food guidelines in the Western world, particularly UK, the US, Australia, they have moved well and truly away from animal-based product towards ultra-processed food and higher in carbohydrates. Everyone says, okay, don't follow the guidelines. But the dietary guidelines, unfortunately, determine what food is served in hospitals, in nursing homes, what's educated to our children, what's served to our armed forces, our defence forces and our prisoners. They're very rigid. You have to stick by those. When I start looking at the amount of ultra-processed food, high in carbohydrate, lacking essential proteins, fats, and having significant amounts of polyunsaturated seed oils, we're looking at food pyramid food guidelines, which are the cause of our obesity epidemic, are the cause of our metabolic health dysfunction, and are the cause of our health crisis that we've got at this point in time. Are the meat and dairy industry not just hiring the right lobbyists? Because they are also part of the food industry. Why aren't they getting more involved in this? Well, I, I should declare my conflict. I, I have one financial conflict of interest, and I, I have actually done a couple of paid lectures for the meat industry here in Australia, but I'm, I'm not paid for them as their spokesperson. I was asked to speak because I'm standing up for the benefits of animal foods, animal-based foods. So here it is, here it is. In Australia, we've got tens of thousands of farmers. We have 13 different meat groups, which are there, supposedly the meat lobby. They are like herding cats. I've, I've lectured to them. I've, st- I've said to them, you are the most disorganised lot because you've got the farmers, the abattoirs, you've got the feedlot people, you've got the producers, the, the manufacturers, you've then got the retail side of it. It's, the dairy is not much better. But here you actually have the processed food industry sitting down every few months and working out tactics. You'd expect a commercial organisation to do that. They want to increase their market share. So that's what they do. The vast majority of nutrition science, if you can call it that, is actually funded by food industry. It's about improving palatability, profitability, shelf life, finding that bliss point. The other side of the market I'm talking about, which is animal-based product, has poor shelf life. It requires refrigeration the majority of the time. It doesn't have huge margins, whereas your packet of cereal can sit on the shelf for months. It's not a lot different to our medical journals. Here in Australia, our therapeutic goods administrator, the ones that actually determine what medications we can and can't use, is 96% funded by the pharmaceutical industry. We're the worst in the world. You know, I think it's in the 80% in the UK. We are completely conflicted by the research that which is paid for and funded by industry. Our journals are conflicted by that. So the situation with the Australian Medical Board, this kicks off in 2014. There's an interim ruling which says, and I quote, there's nothing associated with your medical training that makes you an expert or authority on the field of nutrition, diabetes or cancer, you're not allowed then to make any recommendations to your patients on nutrition. Even if I was seeing them get better. I got reported on one occasion for inappropriately reversing someone's diabetes on national TV. I'm not allowed to put someone into remission. Well, the other puzzling thing that the board said... If it sounds ludicrous, it, it was. I'm going to read this out because I think for the listeners it'll be interesting. The second part of the judgment said... 
even if the benefits of a low-carb, high-fat lifestyle become the accepted best medical practice, this does not change the fundamental fact that you are not suitably trained or educated as a medical practitioner to be providing advice or recommendations on this topic. It gets even worse. I was asked one question directly by the medical board. My lawyer was sitting behind me. He wasn't allowed to sit beside me. He had to sit behind me, so he wasn't able to give advice. And they said, Dr. Fetke, do you believe that advising your patients to cut their sugar intake is specific medical advice? I went, yes. He told me I should have said no. That's how ludicrous this got. And I was actually getting into trouble for advising what's now mainstream. But more importantly, as you just stated, even if it was shown to be best practice in the long term, I wasn't allowed to talk about it. So were you expected to advise on worse practice? No, I, I don't know. <laughs> I did actually ask for clarification. I mean, this is almost Monty Python-esque, but my medical license was on the line and it was costing me hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to actually defend this position. Luckily, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, so arrogance comes well. Now, I knew I was right. You can't argue the biochemistry. You can't argue the holistic side of this aspect because you know i've just spoke with someone today who's literally adopted this lifestyle in the last six weeks he's lost several kilos of weight he's got a list of things he actually sent me a text message about the things that have improved in the last six weeks you can't argue with people eating real food getting crap out of their diet and improving we had two choices one is i could just take it You'd have to know my nature. You probably suspected that that wasn't going to happen. Belinda went loud because I wasn't allowed to speak about it. So she took over my Facebook page at that point in time. And we literally changed from Gary Fetke, no fructose, to Belinda Fetke, no fructose. Belinda's your wife. Belinda's my wife. By far my better half. Punched well above my weight, as a lot of people will say. (laughs) And she was able to take that message out to the wider population. Social media got me into trouble because I was speaking out publicly about it, but social media, actually, I have to thank for saving me. The public outcry was enormous. I think it would be a surprise to most people to hear that doctors are not in a position to give patients any nutritional advice. You think of all the GPs who tell people they need to lose weight to reduce their blood pressure, etc. It's standard medical practice. It is standard medical practice, and I might be an orthopaedic surgeon. I might have all these letters after my name, but my first letters after my name are MBBS, which is Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery, which all doctors have. It's a degree based in science. It's a degree based in that biochemistry. It had nothing to do with science. This all came down to the fact that I was treading on the toes of industry. That message, they didn't want that to go out. So, Gary, how long did the whole inquiry process go on? It was the best part of five years. Uh, In that process, I actually appeared in a couple of Senate inquiries into the medical board. I have to thank politicians for actually getting involved because at the most basic level, we shouldn't be silencing doctors who have a preventative health message. That's all it was. They could see the injustice of it, not just for myself, but for the wider population. And so many doctors around the world who are now advocates for avoiding sugar, the concepts of low-carb diets, particularly in diabetes, ketogenic diets and epilepsy. In the UK, GP Dr David Unwin was getting letters from dietitians telling him that putting diabetic patients on low-carb diets was dangerous. And ironically, he went on to win a GP Innovator of the Year award. 
Yeah, and so I, I would have been just after that, maybe 2018 or whatever, I actually asked David if I could actually have that. <laughs> Can I have that NHS Innovative Award? Because you're getting celebrated for doing this. I'm getting my head chopped off. But there are others now since then, but each one of them, both here in Australia and overseas, I've been able to help them write their responses and they've all been cleared. Yeah, the medical boards of the Western world do not want to go down this path again. But to be fair, in the UK, it never got to that stage with David Unwin. It was letters from dietitians. I agree. You've got a different system in the UK. The UK, not perfect by any means. But in Australia, guidelines become rule books. In the UK still, your guidelines are still guidelines. And so anybody who steps away from the guideline here in Australia is smashed, not just in nutrition. We've ended up with a very defensive medical practice, you know, whether or not that's around nutrition or it's around statins or heart disease. So as a result, the person who misses out in that is the patient. It's not for the entire population. You know, not everyone's the same height. You've got tall people, you've got short people. And our guidelines are for healthy people. So by definition, 93% of the population are not healthy. So therefore, the dietary guidelines are not applicable. But if you look back at the data, the complaint was made against you in 2014. But back in 2008, the ACCORD trial found that intensive management of diabetes, and this was published in the New England Medical Journal, one of the most prestigious journals in the world, found that intensive management of diabetes using current treatment protocols increased mortality and morbidity. So that showed surely that the standard system wasn't working. Completely in agreement. That, in fact, showed the more medication you use, the worse they do. Exactly. But they actually didn't do well. What do the drugs do? All of the drugs that are used in diabetes management are to move the glucose around that you eat, either shove it into the tissues, stop you absorbing it, push more insulin out of the pancreas, or to actually make you pass it out in the urine. All of the drugs used in diabetes management are to do something to move around what you eat. Don't eat it. You know, the most powerful tool we have in diabetes management is diet and then lifestyle and smaller letters after it. It's not drugs. I mean, I've gotten up at diabetes meetings and called out the speakers for their conflicts of interest. It's not pretty, I can guarantee. But all you've got to do is come along to one clinic and see not pretty feet and see the looks on the faces of these patients and their families because the families are worried that they're going to get the same problem because they're eating the same way. You know, okay, there's a certain amount of genetics, but more, more importantly, you know, generation upon generation tend to have the same eating habits. And if the poorer quality food is associated with socioeconomic problems. So from my aspect, when you just see what the problem is, which comes back to the food we eat, and yet we've got pharmaceutical industries which are generating billions and billions of dollars of profit. And the latest one's all related to the anti-obesity drugs. You know, turn obesity into a disease and it's worth trillions of dollars. It is just so wrong. So you've talked about how much disease, including diabetes and a range of other diseases, are linked to inflammation. You believe there are three culprits, sugar, refined carbs, and polyunsaturated fats. So... Looking first at sugar and refined carbs, I think most would agree that limiting the amount of sugar we eat is a good thing. But current recommendations include eating large amount of vegetables and fruit. And while I suspect you support the idea of a wide range of vegetables, you're more sceptical that we should be eating lots of fruit. Everyone says, oh, you're anti-fruit. I'll take it slightly different. I'm not pro-fruit. 
So when you actually work out the biochemistry of fructose and glucose, so sugar is half glucose, half fructose, very similar molecules, just shaped a little bit differently. They have two totally different biochemical pathways in the body. But if we look just at fructose, fructose naturally comes in fruit, naturally comes in honey, naturally comes in a bit of breast milk. But that's actually the only natural sources of it. And fruit in nature, if you want to get, if you want to climb a tree and grab a beehive out and fight all the bees off in summer, good luck to you. You're not supposed to be able to get a jar full of honey out of your pantry. So the natural sources of fruit are when it's seasonally available. But when you actually break down the fructose, the fructose actually has some effects on the hypothalamus in the, our eating centres, in our nucleus accumbens, which is our uh, addiction centre, which drives behaviour. It actually is an anti-leptin effect. So leptin is a hormone secreted by fat to tell us to stop eating. It has an anti-leptin effect. It has a positive ghrelin effect. Ghrelin is secreted by the stomach to make, give us a, a rumbling stomach. So once you actually eat fruit, and you can see the wild animals do it. They go into a feeding frenzy on your fruit trees out in the backyard the day before you want to eat it. So we're doing exactly the same thing as society. So it's all about becoming informed about what fruit does to you. So fruit is over-advertised for its benefits. So the old five a day, you know, have your five fruit and veg a day, that's a term completely made up. On the west coast of the US in 1991, there was a meeting at, on the Baja Peninsula between the American Cancer Council or Cancer Society and 44 well-meaning food industries. The theory at that point in time was if you ate more fruit and veg, you'd have a lower rate of cancer. In retrospect, those people had a higher socioeconomic status, had a lower rate of cancer when you went back and looked at all the data. But at that point in time, 1991, and the term have your five fruit and veg a day was literally made out of thin air. Some countries it's seven a day. Some countries it's three plus two, three fruit, two veg. It's literally a number that has no scientific meaning. There was a huge study done in, out of Europe, started in 1991, had its results in 2011, 20-year results, looking at fruit and vegetable intake. Having a higher or lower intake made no change to cancer rates across Europe. But it always makes me a bit nervous, Gary, with a lot of this food research, because there are so many variables. For example, some people would have been eating more fruit. Some people would have been eating more veg. If they'd been eating fruit and veg that wasn't organic, which might have had chemicals on it, that might also have affected things. And some fruit is much more high carb, like bananas and mangoes, as opposed to berries, which are relatively low carb. There are so many variables. Absolutely. Look, and you, this is how conflicted research is in this area because a tomato paste on a pizza is considered a serving of vegetable in the US. Definition of the Mediterranean diet is so loose. 24 countries around the Mediterranean. What's the Mediterranean diet? It's just completely all over the place. I don't, I don't think you can draw any great conclusions from it. But, you know, that study done out of Europe, that had something like 400,000 participants in it and they couldn't find a benefit or a harm with fruit or vegetable intake. Again, I, I think by sheer numbers, it becomes a powerful tool. Can you make absolute comments from it? No. You start looking at these studies which are done on food questionnaires. I don't know. Can you remember what you ate a week ago, two weeks ago? Was it a small size, a large size? You know, did someone throw spices on it or not? You know, did you eat out? 
Things like polyunsaturated seed oils have a half-life in the body of four years. What did you eat four years ago? Nutritional science is just so conflicted and so uncertain, and at the very best is association data. And even if it's not conflicted, the point I was just making, because there are so many variables, none of the studies that I ever look at are clear enough on all those variables because they could all make a difference. We don't know what difference the chemicals might make. That's why I come back to that evolutionary diet. But you will have heard of Bradford Hill criteria. Yeah. Between association and causation. So to say that you found an association between A and B, you need to then prove it. Like there's a great association data that peanut butter consumption equates in a linear way to murder rates in New York. Complete nonsense. (laughs) But nonetheless, it's a one-to-one relationship and fails on this thing called Bradford Hill criteria. There are several layers to that. But effectively, you need to find an association risk of greater than two. So it's got to be twice as likely to occur in the intervention group as the control group. So smoking, for instance, has is associated with cancer about 20 to 25 times. You know, 2,000 to 2,500% increased risk of cancer, of lung cancer, if you smoke. At the very least, to suggest that association equals causation, you need to at least get a factor, a statistical factor of two. The worst data that you can actually find with highly processed meat causing bowel cancer is 1.12, 12%, 1.12. It's nowhere near two. Everyone says, oh, eating meat causes bowel cancer. Well, if you are male and 70 years of age, your risk of getting bowel cancer is 1.3 times that of women. So you're three times more likely to get bowel cancer as a man at the age of 70 than a woman. We never hear about that. If you're in Asia, you're at no higher risk of getting bowel cancer. Again, with those studies, it's what are the animals being fed? Because if you're feeding them a grain diet, you're eating meat, which is biologically different. If you're eating organic, again, it's different. And are you talking about bacon and sausages, which are more processed than, say, steak? It's impossible to draw conclusions. Based on that, but by Bradford Hill criteria, it is so far off. Some papers that say breast cancer is lower if you eat meat. Some papers say that prostate cancer is lower if you eat meat. There are papers that say that you know meat consumption is actually associated with higher rates of bowel cancer. But if you look at those study groups, those groups had higher rates of smokers and who were sedentary. As you say, there are so many variables when it comes to our lifestyle that I keep coming back to biochemistry. The biochemistry of what we ate 100 years ago versus the biochemistry of what we're eating now. And very clearly, we now have ultra-processed food with, with its whole variety of unknown chemicals. There's a great book by Joanna Blythman called Swallow This. You probably should interview her sometime. Do you know Joanna? No, I don't. If you read that, you'll never eat again because she goes behind the scenes to find out what chemicals are used in the whole processing of food, which they don't need to declare. You'll be able to buy a lettuce at your supermarket in the UK and that will still be crisp in your refrigerator a week or two down the track. If I get lettuce out of our garden, it's wilted within an hour. I haven't put any chemicals on it. These chemicals that are in our system, in our food cycle, are clearly different to what they were 100 years ago. And we've learned how to actually process it out of our sugar cane, take it out of fruits, out of beet, and actually then put it into all these other things because that improves the palatability of the food. That's called the bliss point. So digging into the biochemistry a bit more, looking at fructose, one of the issues is while every cell in our body processes glucose, only the liver can process fructose. 
Can you explain how it drives uric acid production and what implications that has for us? Fructose is pretty well completely metabolised in the liver on first pass. Very little gets through. A portion of it goes down the aldehyde pathway, which is actually the alcohol pathway. So not surprisingly, in nature, if we get grapes, we turn it into wine, we turn it into alcohol. The liver does exactly the same thing. It gets fructose, it turns it into aldehyde, and it gives the same alcohol issues. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a massive problem in society, and particularly our children. A byproduct of breaking down fructose is into uric acid. Uric acid is a chemical which is actually well and truly associated with gout, major explosion of gout now. There's been a doubling of gout in the last 10 years. It's related to our ingestion of fructose and carbohydrate. And so uric acid is interesting because A, it creates uric acid crystals as the byproduct, but the uric acid inhibits a thing called nitric oxidase. Nitric oxide is a critical, only very short-lived chemical in the body, nitrogen and oxygen. And nitric oxide has three major fundamental things that it does. It's secreted by the blood vessels to keep them open. So when you've got high levels of nitric oxide, your blood is able to flow down your vessels. And in fact, in the tiny vessels, it's actually produced and then allows a blood vessel to actually open and then push a single red blood cell along the line. Critical for that. It also is involved in our maintaining of our brain circulation and is also maintaining our ability of our white cells to move, our healing cells, our lymphocytes, our neutrophils, eosinophils, monocytes, all are actually under the influence of nitric oxide. If you bathe the system in more uric acid, you inhibit all of those functions. So blood pressure goes up, hypertension. You have altered brain circulation possibly related to dementia and mental health issues. And you have altered immunity, which happens in diabetes, for instance, poorer healing capacity and higher rates of cancer. All of these are completely interrelated. And the central component of that appears to be nitric oxide and the inhibition of its production by uric acid working on the nitric oxidase. Fascinating, but it all comes back down to that. And it's a complete no-brainer. So those people actually give up sugar or cut down on it dramatically often see their blood pressure improve within days, literally. And I can tell you when the same thing goes with healing of leg ulcers. If I can get my patients to restrict their sugar and carbohydrate intake and get some decent protein into them, I literally see these wounds start to improve. I'm not saying it's going to cure. I'm not saying it's going to save every limb. But you give that person a fighting chance with their healing potential. The other byproduct of fructose in the liver is the production of fat. And in fact, ultimately it circulates through and produces LDL particles, small dense lipoprotein particles. Those LDL particles are the ones which are actually implicated in atherosclerosis in the inflammatory process in the blood vessels. So they're the ones that actually ultimately get within the blood vessel walls, become oxidized, become inflamed. Because we have two forms of LDL. We have the large buoyant, which are not seen as a risk, and the small dense, which is what fructose produces, which is seen as a risk. They can be scanned in seven different sizes, but you're quite right. The large buoyant ones, they're just moving fat around. They're like great big trucks. So part of this perfect storm, you've said, is polyunsaturated fats. Why do you think they are so bad for our health? Saturated fat has no double bonds in it. It's saturated. It's like a brick wall, and it's impenetrable. So the internal aspect of that fat can't be oxidised. There are no double bonds to break 
no, no double bonds to actually get access to it. And I think this was the linchpin in my model of inflammation, is that once those small dense LDL particles become filled with an oxidizable material, which is a, a polyunsaturated oil or polyunsaturated fat, that polyunsaturated oil, they become in, oxidized, becomes inflamed. That oxidation is just like rust. So now we've actually got small dense LDL particles with high fructose levels. They get into the blood vessel walls. They become oxidized somewhere along the pathway because of the oxidation potential of them because of the fat within them. Bang, you've then got inflammation at every single blood vessel wall in every single corner of the body. You've got the same process also occurring in the mitochondrial membranes, which are the engines of every cell. We've created a perfect storm of inflammation every corner, every engine of the body. And guess what the result is? We've now got a society which is unwell. Nobody's come up with a better explanation. And you can never do the double-blind controlled study over 50 or 100 years by having one group of people not exposed to all modern-day chemicals and not being exposed to modern-day food versus another group. All we can do is look at it biochemically. All we can do as an individual is adopt some of those changes away from ultra-processed foods and see whether or not there are health benefits for you. And each of those things, like the benefits of actually not eating sugar and carbohydrate, actually happen within hours. So my one sentence advice to everyone, and there's a lot in that, is actually eat fresh, local, seasonal, whole food based on your culture and environment, avoiding added sugar and processed food. When you take that apart and you take into the seasonality of it, it's actually a very low carbohydrate intake. To actually get all of that and to be able to survive on a seasonal basis means you're going to be dependent on animal-based foods rather than processed plant-based ones. But on the other hand, Gary, if you look at some of the peasant populations around the world, I mean, I'm half Irish. Traditionally, a peasant Irish diet, incredibly high in potatoes. So obviously a complex carb, not a refined carb, but peasant populations around the world, very dependent on rice or pasta and other areas, wouldn't necessarily have been eating a lot of meat. Certainly those poor Irish peasants weren't. They still had meat in their diet. The question is, I suppose, for those of us who are not following a low-carb diet, how low should we go? Because if we look at this explosion of metabolic illness, whether that's diabetes, a range of other conditions, it's really happened in the last 40 to 50 years. Prior to that, obviously, we were eating carbs, but we were eating less processed food and we weren't eating carbs at the same level. I have a term saying that if you eat by the food pyramid, you're going to look like the food pyramid. If you eat by the food pyramid, you're going to die by the food pyramid. Along the way, you're going to look like it. And so therefore, if, if I'm right and the dietary guidelines are conflicted, and I think they're conflicted by biochemistry, I think they're conflicted by vested interests, there's a TV show in the US, South Park, where they said, flip the food pyramid upside down. 10, 15 years ago, there's an episode saying, the world's in crisis, we're getting into trouble, we need to flip the food pyramid upside down. They were probably right. We've become so detached from understanding where our foods come from. And so if, if the average person is listening, start paying attention to where your foods come from. You don't have to be low-carb keto, but because I've ended up in that space and had to defend that space, Often to defend something, you've got to take a polar position. But if we were all to improve the quality of the food we eat, like if 90% of the people did 90% of what I'm saying, 
will have solved 90% of the world's health problems. So, for example, I'm not low-carb, but I always cook from scratch. I don't eat processed food at all. I eat healthy fats only. I do eat sugar and refined carbs, but I try to keep them down. You're already ahead of the pack. I would argue that 50% of your diet isn't sugar and carbohydrate. No, it's not. Which is a food guideline. Yeah. If you're not eating that ultra-processed food and you're not eating all that sugar, it's not driving behaviour for you to eat more of it. I sometimes talk about a pizza. A pizza looks great. It's got colours on it and all sorts of things. But it's high in carbohydrate. It's low in micronutrient value. So a lot of people will eat a pizza, got a heap of calories in it. There's enough fuel in there to keep you, know, keep you going for ages. But you're lacking the micronutrients, the complete proteins and the complete fats. So what do you do? Your brain says, I'll eat another one. So our serving sizes have gotten bigger, and it's because we're not actually eating what we require. And Gary, you've talked about the very high rates of diabetes and obesity in the Polynesian and Melanesian islands. I think the, the Blue Pacific is the forgotten continent, which is you know, all the Polynesian and Melanesian islands. They have the highest rates of diabetes and obesity in the world. And why is that, Gary? I think that's part of their insulin situation. The migration across the Pacific from west to east were on rafts. So the more insulin sensitive you were, the more you were able to store fat to actually make it across. So therefore, the genetics of those people, the further east you go across the Pacific, are they're more likely when they get exposed to carbohydrate that they get fatter. The 10 highest rates of obesity in the world belong to Polynesian and Melanesian islanders. Nine of the top 10 diabetes states in the world, countries in the world, are that same group. Number 10 on the diabetes list is Kuwait. It's an Islamic state that prohibits alcohol. So they have massive sugar, sweetened beverage consumption. Again, an association. They've got one of the highest you know, soda, sugar, sweetened beverage consumptions in the world. We think we're bad in Australia. Tasmania has a poor socioeconomic outcomes and health outcomes in comparison to any other state. But then the Northern Territory will say, no, we're worse than Tasmania. We're all in diabolical trouble. Yeah, it's not a competition you really want to win. No, it's a, it's a really simple equation. The time frame on return on investment for preventative health is longer than one electoral term. So politicians are far more likely to throw money at hospitals and band-aiding sick care than they are at preventative health. Well, I suppose with preventative health, the benefits are sometimes less obvious. It's not the same as seeing more hospitals being built or more operations performed. That, that's why in this low-carbohydrate movement, we're spending a lot of time in the diabetes group. We're literally, within days or weeks, we can put type 2 diabetes into remission. That's where David Unwin's spending his time. And the politicians can see the health benefits within 12 months. What's interesting with that, though, Gary, is, I mean, David Unwin, he said himself, this really was a patient-driven initiative. Because I remember David saying hmm. to me, the first time a patient came in to see him and said he was doing this, he thought, gosh, that sounds dangerous. So in a way, social media helped the patients to connect and give each other advice and drive this that then has persuaded an increasing number of doctors of the value of it. Well, this podcast is part of that. So if it's not dangerous... What are the vested interests stopping the message? And that's really been my journey for the last well, nearly 15 years now. We have a very solid preventative health message of which I can see the results within hours or days, particularly in diabetes. 
And the numbers are harder to see around the other issues of hypertension and, and cardiac disease and cancer and kidney disease. But all of those, we're seeing benefits at a metabolic level which are unequivocal and not reproducible to any degree by the drugs which are currently being forced down our education pathways. This is something driven by the people. Uh, I've lost a lot of respect for the health profession who continued to band-aid rather than actually stand up, take the road less travelled. I can tell you, I mean, our, our whole education system, it, we, we're trained on a concept of re read, repeat, reward. Go to university, read the textbook, read the lecture, repeat it back in the exam and you'll be rewarded with a degree. The moment you actually do the opposite, which is called the scientific method, which is to challenge the paradigm, I can tell you how unrewarding it is financially. I can tell you how many hurdles and things that you're thrown at. My middle name's Teflon for the amount of stuff that's been thrown at my back and hasn't stuck. And I'm not brave. I'm just trying to do the right thing. But the trouble is, why haven't I been backed up by the entire medical profession rather than marginalised? And I'm not the only person who's been in that situation. But the heretics are the ones which question, the ones that have gone forward and actually said, okay, this doesn't make sense. There's got to be another way. You try the other way and you find that it's actually opening up all sorts of doors. I mean, I'm still learning about biochemistry. I'm still learning about some of this stuff. There's not a week that goes by that I'm not learning another piece of the jigsaw puzzle. But I suppose your critics would say you criticise the ideology within food science, but you yourself are an ideologue. Might be painted as that. I'm just giving back basic biochemistry that's in my textbook. Am I an ideologue? Um, I don't think so. Am I passionate? Yes. Am I naive? Absolutely. I honestly thought 10 years ago this would be all over. There's a very small element of nutrition taught in medical schools, similarly very little in continuing education. You actually don't need much. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Eat what's available to you in your community and don't eat ultra-processed stuff. But we as a medical profession aren't part of a health industry, we're part of a sickness industry. And that, and that industry is self-perpetuating because it's, it's much easier to make money out of medicine and do your job. And I know that sounds incredibly harsh and cynical. And I'm not saying that all doctors are corrupt and all nurses are, you know, and it's just, I'm just saying that it's, we've moved down this pathway of it's easier just to comply than it is to not comply. And the whole regulation system, the whole complaints process is so set up to actually keep you complicit. The vast majority of people are still under the umbrella of what I call disinformation from industry. I look at the whole low-carb movement here in Australia. I can still remember meeting Rod Taylor, who started Low Carb Down Under. There were four of us that spoke in his lounge room to 12 people. Those low-carb Down Under videos have now been seen by tens, if not, I think it's over 100 million people now. That is the power of the people, the power of the podcast. And so whilst we aren't being censored, or with minimal censorship in this space, then let's all just keep going. People can take it or leave it. I, I don't force anyone as to what they can and can't eat. I'll say, well, actually look at it from this aspect, look at it from that aspect. Why do you think that's good? Why do you think it's bad? I, I might agree or disagree with it. I'm really fascinated by knowing where you've come with that knowledge. Gary, thank you so much for talking today. Really interested to talk to you. All right. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. In the next episode, I'm talking to former Canadian politician Terence Young, who became an advocate for drug safety after the tragic death of his daughter Vanessa while she was taking the prescription drug propolicide. He explains the 10 points we all need to check before taking any prescription drug. So do join me again. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.